Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Melissa Sevy is the CEO of the Ethic Collective, a growing social enterprise sourcing artisanal goods from 20 countries in the developing world for sale to corporate clients. She'll also share insights about her superpower, stick to Melissa, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Devin. This is so fun to reconnect. Yeah, oh, this is great. So thank you very, very much. So Melissa, you are doing something that I think people have a common misunderstanding about. And that fundamental misunderstanding is that you're doing something that's easy. And I think you are doing something that's hard and remarkably you're getting real traction doing what I think is a hard thing. I want you to take a a minute now and tell people about Ethic Collective. Sure. So Ethic Collective, we are a platform that connects conscious companies with artists and handcraft from around the world. And as you say, it it is something that I thought would be easier when I began. And yeah. over the course of o- over a decade, um, have learned the complexities of, um, you know, international logistics of, you know, differing cultural expectations, quality control and all of this. Um, but we're really working at making this uh, accessible to the Western market and and really being a bridge for these artisan groups that uh, many of them have barriers to accessing the global market. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a, a mother in a remote village in Nepal or Kenya, and you're trying to figure out how to sell your baskets to Americans for two or three X the price your neighbors will pay. Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, and along comes Melissa. But it's interesting and I'm, I'm just fascinated by this, Melissa, that, that I've seen lots of people try this in lots of different ways and lots of different niches. And it just does prove to be really difficult. It's difficult to figure out how to source it. You talked about the quality. I'm sure that's an issue sometimes. But then selling the stuff in the United States, it seems like, well, a no-brainer, right? Well, if, if I can buy these sandals for three or four dollars in Guatemala, I can sell them for 20 bucks in the United States. Everyone wins because who wouldn't pay 20 bucks for sandals? Well, turns out a lot of people won't pay 20 bucks for sandals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your sandals, right? How did how did you work through all of those challenges? Well, to be fair, we failed many times before we nailed what was working. So the the B2C market or, you know, an online marketplace where we're selling to individual customers. And we were also um, in our early days, we were only working with Ugandan artisans that made uh, jewelry and we were selling in small gift shops, selling online, doing home markets. And you're right. We just could not get traction. We could not break into that market. We did not have the money to break into the online market. And, and just that, that forward motion to, to be able to make a carve a place for ourselves in the marketplace. Um, and that's where we, uh, years. So this is many years ago, we started getting approached by companies that said, Hey, 
if we could buy 300 necklaces for our event, this is a women's event and we want to gift this to everybody. And we saw that that was both good for our business model to be able to sell that many at one time. And this was good for our artisans to make 300 at once, to have this more uh, long-term contract where they could make them for many days. And so ramping off of that idea, we now only sell to companies. And so we're only doing large wholesale orders. And, and whereas people or people assume this, and this very often is the case that global handmade items are low quantity and high cost, but global uh, uh, handcraft is actually the, the industry, the second largest industry in the developing world. Um, second only to agriculture. So there's hundreds of millions of people in this sector and, and actually the number one employer of women in the developing world. And so we can work with large cooperatives. Sometimes there will be villages that specialize in basket weaving and they have for generations. And so if we can plug in with their existing cooperative structure, we can actually produce them at scale and offer a a really feasible price to the customer here. Meanwhile, we're in the background doing all the in-between logistics. And so that's what we really see ourselves as, is just this bridge. If we can tell their story and we can show their products. Uh, we also do, we work with the design. So let's say there is a beautiful woven bag that um, a community may use for carrying their rice and we can say, Hey, could we design that to be a laptop case and, and really alter the design to, um, modify that design for a Western market. Yeah, um, we don't we carry really, rice around as much, do we? Here? We, we tend to not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, incredible what you've been working through and it's interesting. You acknowledge your failures, but you didn't quit. Uh, let's talk about that for just a minute. Uh, it had to be hard. It had to be discouraging. Uh, you're relatively young now. I'm picturing you nearly 10 years ago, uh, barely out of grade school, trying to sort out all these challenges. What, what on earth gave you the staying power? So it's debatable whether this is a lack of common sense that I stuck with it. Or if it is, or, or maybe if it is my superpower is, uh, you know, resilience and, yeah. or, or maybe further, just like, I knew it could work because I knew that this was something beautiful. And I knew that this was something that our market is craving that people want, they, they don't want just like something that's off a conveyor belt that we, they don't know the source. Like this is this is the new frontier is knowing the source of where your, your stuff comes from. And the fact that we can do that and we can tell the story of who made it and know how it was ethically sourced, that it's not, you know, cutting down rainforests and being able to, to really have that transparent supply chain can be done in handmade. And so I, I knew there was something there. Um, and so I guess I just kept, whether it was banging my head against a wall or, or just kept iterating, um, to make, to, to find where that niche was going to be. So I don't yeah. know what it was exactly, but a, a, yeah. probably a combination of, of all of that. Yeah. 
I know a lot of people listening to this are thinking to themselves, I've got to get some of Melissa's stuff. Where, where do they go to find your products? Obviously, you sell wholesale to you know companies that have a social mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do where do consumers find them? So we don't sell to consumers, but there right. are online marketplaces that are great for buying one-off things, gifts, things for your home. So I can send you some of those, even if you want to put them in show notes, because I think that's interesting. And I, I definitely want to support others. Like we're, it's not a competition here. We're, we're all trying to do accomplish yeah. the same thing of, of bringing stable and fair pay income to artisans. Sure. But your products end up in consumers' hands eventually, right? It's true. Yes. So where do they find your products? Well, at this point, um, a, a big a company that we work with, um, what what we've done a lot of is, is corporate gifting. And so um, a lot of companies may receive these as gifts. So get in with the right company or connect us to who your company is doing the buying. Uh, we just have this conversation over and over again that people say, you know, I have so many tumblers like, or I don't need another Yeti tumbler or I don't need another, you know, sweatshirt or baseball hat or something. Yeah. Um, and so this is an alternative for gifting within company companies that, that people remember. Um, and we do a lot through um, Young Living here in Utah. Mm-hmm. And so people that are part of that organization um, can purchase products. And yeah, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the artisans for a minute. Um, I remember, you know, my first trip to Uganda five or six years ago, an amazing place. Uh, but where else besides Uganda are you sourcing products and how do you find your artisans and how, how do they really, this is a lot to unpack, but tell us a little bit about how they benefit from selling to you. Yeah. So, um, where we work, uh, we're in over 20 countries at this point and that's growing. We're, we're really working to get to 50 artisan groups within the next few months, um, onto our platform because we just really want to connect these artists and groups and the way that we find them um, over the past decade, I've spent a lot of time abroad living in communities and getting to know some of these artists and groups. So that's kind of how it started with like people I knew and, and knew their operations and that they were um, functioning in, in really equitable ways. Um, But as we scale, we do get referrals from people um, and there are different certifications out there of fair trade or different artisan organizations that we can plug into that um, groups that do have some kind of vetting, but then there's many groups that don't yet have the vetting and, and, you know, to get some of these certifications can be quite costly and, and time consuming and the barrier can be too high for some of these artisan groups. And so we have developed our own vetting tool that and we've kind of made it a, a stepped approach that an artisan group first is reporting reports to us on where they're getting their materials, um, different labor practices. You know, so we're ensuring that there's um, people are fair paid, that they're not employing child labor, um, and so we get them to report on on their practices, and then from there we work on um, developing 
policies with them to put into place, as well as trainings to go along with those policies so that they can, over the course of even a couple of years, get to that level where we can confidently tell our customers that, yes, they are this is a, a fair trade group. These, this was made in, in an ethical place and artisans are being benefited from it. Um, so we're, we're really um, dedicated to be able to ensure that. And, and so have, have kind of put that into place. Do you have a favorite story of an artisan who started working for you and had their life change in some way? Yes. Um, so years ago, when we were just really new, we were just working with our group in Uganda. And what actually how we started, I was living in, in Uganda in 2009. And uh, I was there working for a nonprofit. Um, I was leading college students and doing different community projects through the summer. And while I was there, um, one of our projects was teaching about um, preventing communicable diseases through hand washing with soap. And as I was there, uh, you know, we were teaching these classes in villages. I came to the realization quite quickly that many of the people we were teaching could not afford soap. And so that like, what are we even doing these people don't need our classes right now. They need jobs. And so with that idea, uh, myself and a couple of colleagues started an artisan group comprised of women that we knew. And one of these, uh, one of these women, her name is Eve. She was an artist. Uh, sorry. She, she was, um, she would come and wash clothes for our group. So we had about 20 American university students living in a house and she'd come and hand wash our clothes. She did not speak English at the time and she was quite shy. So she was around a lot, but we didn't get to know her um, too well because of the language barrier. But she was one of our first artisans. So we started with seven women. And a couple of years later, uh, when I had returned and I stayed for almost a year living in the community as we were getting this really going, um, but I remember messaging or sending an email to my group about Eve, this woman who was so shy, she'd hardly look you in the eye. And just in the course of two years, having a dignified job with fair pay, she, she had the nickname of the Mulalu, which means the crazy one. And she is just this force to be reckoned with. She is, she's the jokester in the group. Um, she is the one that any visitors come and she'll jump up on our feet and start singing. We are happy to receive you. Welcome. And she's confident. Um, and now actually over the years, um, just this past year, she was managing 50 women in this group. And so I think seeing Eve's transformation is an anecdotal um, show of like, it's not that she changed. It's that her true self was uncovered uncovered from what, what poverty was covering up. Like she was so weighed down with the burdens of being a single mother and trying to provide for her children in a society that there's not a lot of work for women. And so that, that's, that's one of my favorite 
just I've known her for so long and, and able to see what happens when somebody can reclaim their dignity in that yeah. way. Yeah, that is a great example. What sparked your interest in social entrepreneurship? So actually, I, I was um, doing a master's in public health uh, program and and came in um, with a, a very narrow scope of what I was looking to do. And um, as I got exposed to global health, I really started seeing the complexities of health and and the interplay with um, with economics and how an economic empowerment that that has to go hand in hand for people to be able to access health. Um, and I took a class and um, at Brigham Young University from uh, a colleague of of yours, I believe, uh, Warner Woodworth. It was a social entrepreneurship class, and it really opened my eyes to. Um, to this idea that social good doesn't have to just be like a purely a, a charity or a government program, that there are kind of a wide array of options for working at social issues. And, and you know, the, the idea of social enterprise is that like through business, uh, through conscious and ethical business, that is another option for working on social problems. Yeah, he's he's an amazing professor, uh, emeritus professor now. He's featured in my book, Superpowers for Good, uh, and uh, I just couldn't admire him more. I'm so glad to be able to connect his work as a professor to this sort of ripple in the pond that he may be only marginally aware of, right? That That because you were inspired in part, because mm-hmm. you were inspired by his work and his class, you're now out there changing the lives of women in 20 countries, soon to be 50 countries. It's amazing. It's amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, what is your superpower? Well, I think, I think it might just be that, 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 stick-to-itiveness for years. I mean, I, in the early days, we were a nonprofit um, and I was doing that full-time. I had a master's degree. I was in my late 20s and was doing plasma to pay for groceries. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but oh my God. No, it's sad. So I'd go at 6 a.m. because it was really embarrassing to run into people uh, when, yeah. when that I was at, I was at that level and, and I, 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 those were the options I had. I, I was doing that. I was running dogs for money. I was teaching dance classes in, um, my roommate's basement and, um, so many other things to try to make this work because I knew it could, I, I, I knew that at any moment I could go out and seek a, a more mainstream job. Um, so for whatever reason, I kept pushing through. Um, and, and luckily it, it has led to a, a place where, where we've looked at our mistakes and, and really dug into why, you know, why are people not buying our products? Oh, well maybe we need to work on the design or, you know, iterating from, 
selling to individual customers to just specializing in what companies need. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that would be it. Yeah. stick to well, Yeah. That's, that's an amazing superpower. It's an amazing superpower. Uh, and, uh, yeah, really amazing. How has that influenced your ability to actually have impact and do good? As you look back, if you had not been stick to uh, would you have had the impact you've had? So yes and no. And one, one thing I can say, and when I talk to other entrepreneurs or, or those that are looking into being social entrepreneurs, um, there are things that I could have done from the beginning to expedite the process. Like it doesn't necessarily have to take a decade. Um, the thing that I think changed it for me was accessing good mentors. And, and I, I would have to say, I'm, I am the product of mentors and, and I've had great women and a lot of great men that have taken me under their wing to learn about business, even if they weren't in the social realm and that like understanding how powerful that can be to learn from someone that's been there before, um, that's, that's been a, a, a big part of my journey, I think. Yeah, I hear you. How would, how do you think you developed that strength, that stick the resilience, the persistence? How did you develop that? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I should ask my mom. <laughs> how I st stuck at things. Cause I, I remember that in high school, I was part of a dance team that was a type of dance I'd never done before. And at the end of the year, I got the most improved award and it's the biggest trophy I've ever gotten. And it's a double-edged trophy. You know, it's a, it's a funny award to get when you're like, you weren't that good, but you got better. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if that's something that, um, that like I had really, I grew up with really supportive parents that I think, um, allowed me the opportunity to fail and try again. And, and so I think that I, I'm like, okay with failure. And so, and I think another thing is being okay with ambiguity is maybe a, a factor that leads into being able to stick with something when it's really murky. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's something that as humans, I think we're, we're not comfortable with. We want certainty, but knowing that ambiguity is crucial for doing things that haven't been done before. Sure. Sure. I see, I see the point you're making. Now, yeah, if if you had absolute clarity, you could only sort of have that clarity if you're repeating, if you're walking a path that's been well trod. Mm -hmm. But if you're walking a new path, if you're mm -hmm. breaking breaking a trail, mm -hmm. you're going to have to be ready for a lot of different stuff and anticipate that there are a lot of things that you're not anticipating that will happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. How else do you think other people could learn to develop their own stick to to be more like Melissa? 
<laughs> well, um, I would say finding, finding your like unique contribution to the world. Like you don't need to just, when people think about, um, people, you know, having these, these discussions of what, what am I here to contribute in this world? You know, in, in these like deep questions that we ask ourselves, um, being able to identify your gifts, your passions, kind of the cross section of the things you love and the things that you have might have an affinity for, um, and being able to make that part of your career, it makes it that work doesn't have to be drudgery. Even when I was not making money for a long time. And, and by the way, I have to say that I absolutely do not profess to understand poverty. Uh, personally, I always had a safety net. And yeah. there was one point that I sold my sewing machine to my parents to pay for groceries. And we still joke about it. And I now have my own sewing machine again, but, yeah. but, uh, and they were, and I was talking about that with them recently. And they were like, you should just ask us for money. And I was like, I know, I knew that I could, but I just hated being sucking resources from people. But, but finding, finding your love and it can be, it can, it can be, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be just the typical like passions that we might list off, but if you can have that be part of your work, um, then, then those barriers stop looking so formidable. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Uh, well, Melissa, uh, that is really, I think, profound insight. Uh, I'm grateful for your example. I'm grateful for all the good work you're doing. Before we wrap up, would you take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about Ethic Collective? And how they can connect with you, maybe how they can follow you on social media and and perhaps more directly if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, sure. Um, you can just find us at ethic. So ethic is spelled E-T-H-I-K collective.com. Um, that's our social media handle as well on Instagram. Um, that's and on Facebook. Um, my Instagram is just Melissa C V. That's S-E-V-Y. Um and yeah, would love to connect. We right now we've recently um, launched a gift box where companies can choose from items from around the world to put into a gift box altogether. Uh, for example, you could do a cozy holiday winter package that might have um, coffee uh, sourced from women um, growers in Guatemala together with a cashmere scarf made by people with disabilities in Nepal, um, you know, together with a stoneware mug from Vietnam all together. Anyways, those type of things, that's a really fun thing to, to make gifting more meaningful. And then we will include a card with the, a picture and story of each of the people that made it. Um, the artisans that, that from these groups that have made these items. Um, and then also, um, we can create product lines for companies 
uh, for them to release as their own products, but we'll do all the logistics to work with the artists and groups and make it happen. So yeah, we, that's cool stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Melissa. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I'm grateful for the impact you're having, the work that you're doing, the effort you're making to make the world a better place. And it is because of you. So thank you very, very much. It's a lot of us. And and our artisans make beautiful stuff. And so we just are showing that. So I am not an artist myself. I just appreciate art. And, um, and so it's a collaboration that has turned into something really beautiful. Fantastic. I'm glad that it has. Thank you very much for being with us. And uh, let's do some good. All right. Thanks, Devin. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.